Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Let's say we've spotted an asteroid that's on a collision course with the Earth. We've got six months to prepare to try to preserve a population of people in a bunker inside a mountain somewhere. Would you also give them works of literature? Would you also give them music? We've had plenty of close calls with the end of the world, and yet, here we stand. I could run through a long list of predictions dating back through history that heralded the end of days, but obviously nothing came of them. However, as the coronavirus pandemic continues to put a stop to our normal way of living, and in a year where we've seen dramatic and frightening wildfires rampaging through Australia, and we've watched the Arctic ice shelves melt at an exponential rate, we're beginning to scratch our heads and wondering if this is finally it. So-called preppers have largely been written off as overcautious conspiracy theorists, but when the time comes and the end is nigh, they may have the last laugh. Today's guest isn't a prepper, but he is a scientist, and has spent a great deal of time imagining how we would live in a post-apocalyptic world. Let me introduce you to the author of The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Our World from Scratch, Professor Lewis Dartnell. Chapter 1. What Sci-Fi Leaves Out It's a theme that comes up time and again in literature and film, whether it's the dystopian lawless world of Mad Max, the mayhem that ensues in Lord of the Flies, or the zombie-ridden world of I Am Legend. Audiences love to imagine how humans would respond to a world without order. What's interesting to note is how mankind doesn't come off very well in many of these tales. We are invariably portrayed as greedy, immoral, cruel, and power-hungry, except perhaps for the chosen protagonists. But Rudger Bregman's latest book, Humankind, A Hopeful History, suggests actually that humans are innately good. So perhaps it's time to change the way we write these stories. Perhaps we can focus more on the realities of rebuilding a world that's faced down Armageddon. Whether writing about a fictional apocalypse, or living through a genuine one, Lewis Dartnell has written the only handbook you'll ever need. It's a thought experiment. I don't genuinely think the world is about to end, but as... As, as a thought experiment, as a, as a kind of a, a point of imagination, let's pretend that we wake up tomorrow and the world as we know it has disappeared and the rest of humanity has disappeared and you're trying to work out how to go about rebuilding everything from scratch. You've got a, a small community of post-apocalyptic survivors and you want to try to avoid another dark ages. You want to try to accelerate the rebooting of civilization from scratch as quickly as you can. And so this is the the kind of idea that the knowledge explores. What has been the most important scientific discoveries and technological innovations throughout our history that you'd want to leapfrog back to as quickly as you could to sort of pull yourself back up by your own bootstraps. So, so in a sense, it's could you do Minecraft, but for real? How could you extract right. what you need from the world around you and then use things in different combinations with each other to help yourself out, make your life more comfortable and convenient and, you know, kind of progress technologically again? And, and presumably this, do you have to have this knowledge anyway, you know, before the apocalypse to, to then use it post-apocalypse? <laughs> so but so the, the premise of the book of the knowledge is, is a science and history book and it attempts, the conceit at least, is that it is a single handbook that you would need that tells you everything about how to make, you know, a DIY guide to making civilization from scratch for yourself. And of, of course, that as a, as a premise, as a conceit, 
um, would be actually impossible. You'd need an entire library of different books of practical skills and medical skills and instruction and, and data. And so the skills that you already have, just, just intuitively, or things that you've, you've learned and developed and skills and expertise over your lifetime are going to be enormously important. So if we were doing this rebuilding after an apocalypse type, type game for real, you would want on your post-apocalyptic survival A-team, you would definitely want a carpenter, a metal worker, a doctor or nurse, a chemist, uh, a farmer, someone who knows how to, you know, kind of grow food so everyone else doesn't die in your society in the first couple of years. We're, so we're basically breaking all of the Desert Island Disc rules about luxury items then, are we, in terms of what we're <laughs> about to take? Yeah, so like I said, the, the, the premise of the book is, let's assume you have nothing, you don't you don't have literally anything in your pockets, which is the kind of starting point for, for this computer game for Minecraft as well. Where do you go to in the natural environment, the natural world to extract things which are useful for you? How do you do that? How do you get metal to get to come out of the rocks? How do you make tools out of that metal? What are the most useful tools to make? How do you use tools to make other tools? And then, you know, it's this idea of kind of exploring back through this network of one thing giving you capability and enabling you to do the next thing and kind of linking back in this in this big network of, of capability. If I think about post-apocalypse dystopian mm. fiction, and I know we're talking about conceit and, and, you know, what might happen, but if I think about the way that it has been dramatized, typically you get one of two things. You, you either get the build-up to the big boom yeah or whatever it was that happened or you get a world which has existed for a period of time post boom sure um but but what happens uh, you know but that's when society has sort of moved on a little bit and everyone is retrenched and everyone is now hunkered down presumably there is a and what happens before all of that in the sort of the immediate post boom world is it different to the way that we join these stories a few weeks or even months on yes i, th I think you're absolutely right there's, there's a great dichotomy in sci-fi literature books and also cinema and hollywood and, and films and tv series about this they're either a disaster film or they are a post-apocalyptic film and nothing really seems to treat that kind of awkward in-between period and the, the interesting distinction between those two categories is that in a disaster film, you watch all of the famous landmarks around the world being destroyed. You, you watch the White House being flooded or blown up. Whereas in post-apocalyptic films, the famous landmarks of the world have had to survive so that you can have that touchstone back to our world. You have to be able to recognize the Statue of Liberty sticking out of the... The, the sandy beach and the post-apocalyptic story um, of um, Planet of the Apes. Yeah. The point about disaster films and post-apocalyptic films is they're not about a future or an alternative reality. They are about our world, but they're holding up a mirror to that current world, to our society, so we can ask particular questions about it. And what I wanted to do with the knowledge was, was address that awkward in-between bit that most films and stories and books seem to just skip over. What happens the morning after, the night before, when the world has ended? What do you do when you wake up to keep yourself alive in the immediate aftermath, but then start trying to plot some kind of trajectory of uh, recovery over the coming days and weeks and months and years 
and decades and potentially even a century or two down the line when you are now legitimately building your own engines and solar panels and whatever you need to, to run a whole civilization. So in that immediate aftermath, then we are we are what we are scrabbling around trying to work out what we know, what's left, what's available, what we can grab. Is that is that fair? Yeah, so I talk about this grace period in the book that if we take this conceit, you wake up tomorrow and the vast majority of the human race has just disappeared, there's still be a lot of stuff left lying around. You're not going to have to work out the fundamentals of agriculture by the weekend because you're not going to starve to death. There will be plenty of supermarkets and warehouses full of food, the, the kind of preserved sustenance of the world that came before ready for you to, to dine out on those leftovers. And so, for example, in um, that first chapter of, of the knowledge on this grace period, um, I calculated, again, as another thought experiment, how long could a single average supermarket keep one person alive for? If, if you're locked in an average supermarket for the rest of your natural life, how long could you feed yourself for uh, by eating the preserved food on the shelves? That's interesting. <laughs> so I worked this out. Like I said, a scientist wants to actually work out the answer. And I went to the average supermarket, which I I told myself was the uh, Sainsbury's in Angel Islington, which was right by where I lived at the time. And I walked up and down every aisle of this supermarket, counting all of the food that was there, getting some very odd looks with my pen and paper, my clipboard from all the other people trying to do their weekly grocery shop, but multiplied all that food edible stuff together, divided it by the amount you would need to eat per day to survive. And the answer comes out that a single supermarket could keep one person alive for 55 years or 63 years if you're happy to eat all the canned dog food and cat food as well. So there's a little kind of tongue-in-cheek tongue joke there, but the kind of deep truth I was trying to mine down to with this thought experiment is that the reason all of us living today in the developed world in these mega cities around, around, around the earth, we no longer fear the coming of winter or starvation or famine because we have worked out how to grow food incredibly reliably and efficiently in the fields, but then just importantly, stop that food from going off. We can preserve it for many months and many years and build these huge reservoirs of edible stuff that support the cities and the rest of civilization who now, these people don't have to work in the, in the farms and the fields. They can become carpenters or uh, scientists, inventors or doctors or architects or accountants or every other role that a modern society needs now that people aren't being forced to, to live by subsistence of the vast majority of population just growing food so they can survive. If I, if we think about, I mean, this is this would be quite textbook stuff, but if we think about something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm. is it is it fair to say? Because there's been research done into how that pyramid translates into drama and fiction, and, and if we think about the bottom of that pyramid, we've got basic physiological stuff like breathing yeah and, um, and not going, getting too cold or dying of and not getting too cold and all of that and we prioritize that i was reminded of that recently when you know 
to- you couldn't find toilet paper anywhere. And, and I think, you know, we've almost regressed. And I wondered if you'd have done this experiment during lockdown, you certainly wouldn't have survived 55 years, which you? you might have survived five minutes with what was left on the shelves. Well, yeah. So th- this idea of the grace period um, assumes that our few people left alive rather than the entire population basically suddenly scavenging and foraging what they need. But the interesting thing with the toilet paper is we never actually ran out of paper Mm. or toilet paper or the raw materials to make toilet paper from, i.e. forests. It was just a sudden glut in the supply chain because people believed we were about to run out. So they bought more than they needed and and it was no longer on the the supermarket shelves. But there was something quirky about toilet paper, which is why it was toilet paper that was the first thing to basically disappear from the supermarkets, is that it's incredibly cheap. You basically make no profit out of selling loo roll in a supermarket, but it's unfortunately incredibly bulky and big. You can't keep many packs of it in the warehouse room in the back, and you wouldn't bother because it doesn't gonna make you much money anyway until there's suddenly a rush on toilet paper and everyone takes one extra pack. No one had to be particularly uh, selfish about it. Everyone had to take a little bit more than they would have needed for the next week anyway. And suddenly there's a nationwide um, shortage in the supermarkets, but not in the supply chain of of loo roll. I know it's quite often it's the most prosaic, basic and everyday things that suddenly highlight these deep complexities in the supply chain and resource production, and particularly just-in-time delivery um, into supermarkets, which is how our modern society works. Chapter two, the skills to survive. With all the extra time we've had on our hands recently, many of us have been learning new skills, whether it's a new language or craft, or finally picking up that cookbook and learning to bake. But there's so much we don't know that we take for granted. How does a mobile phone really work? What goes into making it? Where would you start? How about your kettle? Or stripping it back, could you even grow your own food? Hunt for yourself? Build a house or even a hut? Lewis's book is full of incredible insight. But when modern humans lack so many basic skills, is there anything that could actually prepare us for an apocalypse? I'm not trying to pretend that if you had to do this for real, if you did get you know, marooned on a large desert island or you fell through a time warp to 100,000 BC or something and you genuinely had to do everything from scratch yourself, that a, a modern person living in a city today, you know, our survival skills have, have, have atrophied. We, we don't need to know how to hunt or craft a bow and arrow or how to grow food from seed reliably to feed ourselves. We, we don't teach people that in schools anymore. What we teach in schools are the skills and knowledge that people, when they grow up to become adults, will need to use to support their society, to support each other. We, we teach mathematics and becoming you know, an accountant. We teach science and getting into kind of technology. We, we're very much an information-driven um, society, at least in the developed world in Britain at the moment. So we don't teach people these survival skills anymore. But I think you're right that what one of these mirrors that's been held up to the way the world works at the moment with this global pandemic and people being trapped at home is just how much stuff we take for granted. Like, mm. I used to not give it a second's thought, and I think this is probably true of most of us, didn't give it a second's thought of something runs out in the fridge, I nip round the corner of the road, pick up whatever I want, I'm back within 10 minutes. Until suddenly you can't just do that, until you are locked down or things are disappearing from supermarket shelves because of these glitches in, in the supply chain. But what I've, um, and I wrote an, an article about this as well, I wrote a, a feature piece, is what I've 
been really excited in seeing is just how much people have been taking this opportunity to, to at least a, a, lit, a little bit, at least a, a limited extent of going back to the basics and making things from scratch themselves. Like saying, cooking a meal, actually making dinner for themselves rather than just picking up a microwave meal from Tesco's on, on their commute back from, from the office in, in the normal world, as it were, or, or baking. And there is something really beautiful about baking and this kind of back to basics type mentality. Because all you are taking is some flour, which is some grass seeds that you've ground down into a powder, and then you mix it with some water. And you don't even need to have yeast for this process because you can very, very simply extract yeast yourself with a very simple kind of primitive microbiology experiment in creating your own sourdough starter, which I explain how to do in the knowledge in the book. And a lot of people are doing this, that they're trying to make their own sourdough starters. You know, you can't move on Facebook or Twitter at the moment for people proudly showing off pictures of their jam jars frothing over the top with their with their yeast culture. Yeah, I mean, my wife and I could basically open a deli given <laughs> how much stuff we've made. There is on my windowsill, there is a large jar of homemade lime pickle, which has taken taken two and a half weeks to get to this particular stuff. Oh, very nice. You know, but it's utterly delicious and the sort of things that we never normally have time for, whereas time is all we have at the moment yeah. in terms yeah. of, um, you know, being here. And as long as you can get stuff, I guess, delivered, then you kind of settle down a little bit. But it's been also interesting to see how quickly organizations and people have adapted and started doing things, you know, differently, how quickly organizations were able to start producing PPE, whereas previously they'd made widgets or gadgets yeah. or whatever whatever it, it might be. It's almost as if, you know, almost instinctively, we have found a way to carry on and to adapt and to keep going. So there is something of the survival instinct in us already, clearly. That's that's not something that you you can control. That natural human desire to stay alive is really what we see um, at times like this. Yeah, absolutely. There's been an incredible display of resourcefulness and resilience and innovation. And whether that is a factory that previously was making, you know, high street fashion clothing has now diverted its resources its production line to making PPE and, and face masks. But but also not just on a kind of institutional or, or corporate level, a large scale level, but also on an individual level. There was a huge surge in people that just happened to have a 3D printer at home that repurpose that to make, um, you know, kind of little behind the ear catches to, to help hold on um, face masks so it didn't irritate the back of the ear for all the uh, nurses and doctors and, and healthcare workers that were wearing face masks for hours upon, upon hours. So again, there's this real kind of, I guess, kind of fulfillment of what each of us are capable of if we put our mind to it or if we're forced into that situation by, by the circumstances. Chapter three, matters of the soul. When we're fleshing out the characters in our writing, building up their backstories and really trying to underpin what makes them tick, all sorts of passions emerge. Maslow's hierarchy of needs lays out perfectly the building blocks for the fictional people we imagine, from physiological needs to safety, love and belonging, and finally through to esteem and self-actualization. But how much of that hierarchy would be relevant in a primal world where everybody's just fighting to survive. A lot of emphasis in our society today is placed on self-fulfillment, 
But when humanity is desperate simply for water, food and shelter, does anything else really matter? A recent TV series, Race Across the World, sees challengers competing in an epic race without access to their mobile phones or the internet. In a sense, their lives have been stripped down to the basics. One goal, no distractions, win or lose. And yet they still find time to take in the beauty of the world around them and to admire the sights and sounds. So maybe Maslow's hierarchy is less cut and dry than it seems. Perhaps, even in a struggle for survival, all of the other needs still matter. One thing I I did wrestle with for the book is... I'm a scientist. I wanted to write a popular science book that, like, like, I hope is clear, isn't actually about the apocalypse or the end of the world at all. That's just a way of exploring behind the scenes of how our modern world actually works and, and how we got here across the centuries um, of history. And so I wanted to write about the science and technology that we all just take for granted without, without appreciating, without realising. But things I didn't write about in the book and I had to necessarily just leave out in, in terms of having enough space and, and pages, was if you did actually think this was about to happen, let's say we've spotted an asteroid that's on a collision course with the Earth, we've got six months to prepare to try to preserve a population of people in a bunker inside a mountain somewhere with all the tools they'll need, and all the knowledge they'll need, and information they'll need to recover and reboot afterwards, would you also give them works of literature? Would you also give them... Uh, music and cinema and all these other things that make life worth living? Would you try to preserve that as well? Or would you perhaps think that those are things that people would do innately anyway? You don't need to preserve storytelling. People are innate, you know, intrinsic storytellers. And whichever society, whatever kind of form of of community appears after this great big reset, they're going to want to tell stories about themselves and perhaps a Shakespearean play will just have no relevance to them. You know, like we, we don't we, we don't go to an art gallery to uh, look at cave paintings apart from the kind of historical interest because they don't resonate with our way of life anymore. You know, art and literature and, and beauty has to be within its its own context. It's interesting that one of the longest running radio programs of all time, Desert Island Distance, mm. does precisely that right you get to save one record you get given the bible and the complete works of shakespeare all of which you know unless you're going to set fire to them in order to cook your meal <laughs> would seem to be the last thing that you would want on a desert island yeah i, I, I well i don't know i am not a religious person um but i think in fairness desert island Discs, it's bible or religious text of your of your choice that's correct yes that's correct but i, I, I wonder if maybe they give the listed work the complete works of Shakespeare not because anyone would actually want to really sit down and read them all but because people will feel like they have to give what is expected to be the correct answer for Desert Island Disorder well obviously I'll take a great great work of literature um I would I would like to take the book that I have read the most often and enjoyed um because you're probably going to read this if you can if you can only preserve one book you are going to be reading that book cover to cover again and again so it should probably be one you've already read lots and still enjoy one of my favorite all-time answers on that show, and I think it was Mark Commode, hmm. he said, well, the first thing I would do would be go would go to the nearest bar on account of the fact that he he, he believed it to be a desert island like Hawaii. Oh, not, right. I wonder if someone's not quite grappled with the premise of the program. <laughs> or he's, or it's, it's completely open to interpretation, which I think is, yeah. which I think is great. Um, there was a certain prescience about the book 
um, you know, given what we're what we're going through at the moment. Um, have you changed any of your um, opinions about what you wrote, or has it just simply reinforced what you wrote when you think about the way that we've all been behaving over the recent, um, you know, recent lockdown? Well, I've, I've actually had to be quite careful. Uh, about the knowledge about the book during this current global lockdown because uh, page one of the knowledge posits a global pandemic wiping out the majority of humanity as a premise to a thought experiment and it's a little close to the bone at the moment yeah i am not saying that COVID 19 is going to collapse human civilization it will not it is not nearly as uh, virulent or as dangerous or with a high lethality as that nonetheless a huge number of people uh, are suffering medically at the moment and a vast number of people are going to suffer economically in the coming years um after this after this lockdown so well after this pandemic so the lockdown is individually impacting us at the moment but there will be huge repercussions for society and the way our industrial civilization works at the moment um resonating for years after after this pandemic but it does just go to highlight that, that very often if you can conceive of it it could happen you know it's not it's not without um precedent it is astonishing how quickly things have got to this stage and you know how quickly we become not immune immune is the wrong word but how quickly we sort of look at a number a tragic number of people who have passed away and lost their lives um, which is incredibly sad Hmm. and and you know life-changing for for everyone that's left um around them but how quickly you look at it and go, oh, today was a better day because that number is not as ridiculously high as it was the day before. It's almost as if it's um, we've we've become numb to it. And I and I think that I, what I hope people take out of this is that there has been a huge cost um, that the world um, has paid because of what has happened. And I do hope that we learn something from that not necessarily in terms of you know the book and the skills to help us survive but that we learn about the value of humanity and the value of life because that you know in terms of hierarchy of of needs um it it seems to be utterly important to to everybody but you know if you can conceive of something it can happen not necessarily in the way that you originally conceived but it's a version of that and I found that very, very interesting. But I completely understand why you've had to be careful about what you wrote. <laughs> yeah, complacency can be exceedingly dangerous. And without wanting to get too political, I think profound example of that right now is the United States and how President Trump had effectively disassembled a lot of the national infrastructure that already existed to monitor disease outbreaks and to put into action plans to, to, to treat them. And... America has got one of the worst death rates at the moment for the coronavirus. It has not responded well as a, as a nation to this pandemic. And as I've said already, the coronavirus or this COVID-19 coronavirus is not going to collapse human civilization at the moment. That doesn't mean that the next global pandemic won't, or perhaps the one after that. And if anything, the way the modern world is set up, we are far more vulnerable, not less vulnerable, to a sudden collapse from a global pandemic than perhaps we have been previously in history. Despite all of the uh, vaccine research and hospitals and kind of medical science, the majority of the human race now lives in very dense populations, concentrated, packed into cities, and we can effectively teleport from one city to the next with modern air, air travel. 
So it's, and we found this, we saw this very clearly with coronavirus, it's exceedingly difficult to isolate and prevent transmission of, of, of diseases into global pandemics in the way the modern world is set up. And whereas perhaps in the 1340s with the Black Death, the bubonic plague back then, there was a staggeringly high death rate, a, th- a third, perhaps up to a half of people in, in some towns across Britain and Europe and, and, and China. But back then, people were just so much more closely connected to making things themselves. They, they were much more close and, and, and understood the means of production to keep themselves going. And as we've already said in this conversation, that is simply not true today. Perhaps it doesn't take too much of a jolt to this huge global network of infrastructure and production to trigger a chain of dominoes for the whole thing to, to come down. Well, let's hope not. Well, and, absolutely. And let's, that, and let's hope that people are, are, are prepared um, should this happen again. Lewis, thank you very much for your insight. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you, Mark. It's been fun. A massive thank you then to Professor Dartnell for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learnt? Much of science fiction tackling the end of the world either focuses on the catastrophic events that bring it about or the civilizations that spring up some years into the future. Perhaps you can find inspiration in Lewis's book by taking a fresh look at the days and weeks during the immediate aftermath. There are often rewards to reap when taking a trip into uncharted territory. A rush to buy toilet paper at the start of this pandemic highlighted a supply chain issue no one even knew anything about. Sometimes the most basic thing can be the catalyst for a major problem. In your writing, consider subverting what we take for granted and what we believe to be certainties by turning the mundane or innocuous on their heads. And finally, the disaster film The Day After Tomorrow shows scenes of books being burnt for warmth with some survivors horrified to watch humanity's greatest works going up in flames. But in the real world, when the going gets tough, would sentiments survive? The question you should ask yourself is this, does our hierarchy of needs ever change? The situation and circumstance profoundly alter what we see as important, or is there no escaping our innate desires? Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Coming up next week, I'll be in conversation with Alison Richards from Endpoint. We use all of the things that we can see, hear, smell um, and feel to find our way. Wayfinding is about everything that we do to navigate. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. Keep writing.